So what is your practice now, right at this moment? I would say, very obviously, your practice is listening. Mine is talking. I have to listen to what I say in order to, I hope, speak in a way that's perhaps a little bit of help. But uh, you have to do your your side, too. Uh, If you do, even if there isn't a word that's of any value to you in this talk, the 45 minutes will have been very well spent. Because to practice listening, this may not surprise you, it's similar to what we've been doing all day long, you have to notice how you're not listening. It's not that I expect everyone to strain, staring with veins popping out of your neck. Rather, just listen the way you always do. But notice now, when you do listening, what happens. And if your mind is anything like mine, I think you'll find that a fair amount of the time, it goes off somewhere. It hears something that it agrees with, and then it's off and running. Or it's something it disagrees with, or it doesn't even take that. Uh, It's not to stamp that out, but it's more now to become sensitive to it. And it's in listening to your inability to listen that uh, real listening starts to develop. So many of you are here, not only here for the first time, but really new to meditation. And uh, what have you been doing now for a day? What have we put you through? What have you voluntarily handed yourself over to? Uh, To some degree, probably you've now discovered a new form of suffering that you didn't have (laughs) when you came here, right? Yeah. Really exotic, some of it, wanting to get a, I don't know, follow the breath with more consistency. Uh, Your body hurts. You're, You're impatient in the line waiting to take a shower. There's all kinds of things that you don't have to put up with at home. Uh, So here, uh, there's also suffering. But as one of my own teachers put it, there's suffering that leads to more suffering, and there's suffering that goes beyond suffering. That's what this is about. At least that's what it's designed to do. Put another way, uh, Vipassana, insight meditation, is here to help us flower as human beings. That's the whole point. Now, perhaps you can't make that connection between flowering and obsessionally tracking each breath. And I hope that I can at least begin to uh, shed some light on that this evening. The Buddhist teaching has everything to do with know thyself, which is a value that is very important in the West as well. I don't think I've ever been to a college or university that hasn't had on at least one building something like know thyself, some version of that. And yet you don't see long lines of people queuing up to do it. If you did, the society wouldn't look the way it does and sound the way it does. So we value it. We value self-understanding. The Greeks said it was was really good, good thing to do. And we've agreed with them for thousands of years. Uh, What the Buddha has added is his agreement with that. 
but also a very concrete and practical technology, particular forms and understandings that are designed to take this from being a cliché, perhaps an unacknowledged one, to something that is perhaps the most important thing a human being can do. Because if you don't understand yourself, if you're ignorant of yourself, if you ignore yourself, then that's your, what you're giving to the people in your world with you. That's what we all do. Each one of us can, can't give any more than what we are. And so in this practice, we start exactly where we are. Where else can you be? Now, we fight it. We'd like to be someone else and be someplace else, perhaps, psychologically. But over and over again, we keep finding out that this is how it is for me in this moment. Uh, crucial in the Buddha's understanding of, self un of self-knowledge, know thyself, is an understanding of suffering, an understanding of what is called dukkha, Crucial to this understanding is, and finally fundamental to it, is ignorance. That is, when you track this down deeper and deeper and follow it all the way through, uh, it turns out that the root source of our suffering is ignorance. It's not the atomic bomb. That comes about because we're ignorant. We don't understand how to live together. We don't have a clue. And yet we keep talking about it over and over and over again. We all love peace and we keep preparing for war. What is that? So there's something off. And it's not something that's off in those people out there in the government or in the United Nations or in uh, Serbia, wherever you think it's off. It's us. The world is made up of us individuals. The Buddha saw it as uh, his teaching had everything to do with that. Suffering and the end of suffering. Now. Suffering, as the Buddha talks about it, makes a distinction between pain and suffering. Pain is something that everyone must have. If you have a body, you must have pain. It's part of the existential condition of being human. No one can escape pain. But suffering, as I'm using it, is optional. That's what we add on to, the inevitable pain and discomfort that accompanies us as we move through life, as we age and so forth. There's not much we can do about that. I mean, we can improve our health, but inevitably we come up against the same things. Every human being, every, everyone who's alive. The Buddha formulated this many ways. The, the simplest and most direct, and for myself, extremely helpful, is in the Four Noble Truths. I'm not going to go into the Four Noble Truths in detail tonight, <clears throat> I'm going to sketch out some of the basic, uh, the basic parameters of it and then uh, link it to what we've been doing here and what we will do in the remaining time that we have this evening and tomorrow. Uh, it's often likened to a spiritual doctor. The Buddha is likened to a, being a spiritual doctor. For, step number one is a diagnosis. There is suffering. That's the first noble truth. I don't know if you remember, but I think it was perhaps the first evening. In this tradition, in the tradition of the Buddhist teaching, suffering is considered a gateway to liberation. But you have to 
like a gate. You have to walk th through it. You have to go into it and through it, and then there is a beyond it. There is freedom. But it comes from fair, squarely knowing when we are suffering, knowing it. So the first noble truth is to even know that there's a problem, to even know in a certain moment that something's off, that there's some uh, dissatisfaction or uh, lack of fulfillment or whatever it is, whatever you like, whatever words we use. Uh, and there's a cause. The cause is craving and attachment. That is, because we crave and grasp at things, we suffer. The practice is, first and foremost, is to get to know, if we're suffering, to know it. And as we get to know it, uh, begin to see if this is so, to see if this, uh, if the doctor is correct. This doctor has given us a, uh, a correct, correct way of looking at things. It's also said, the third noble truth, that there is an end. There is, it's not a, an incurable disease. There is an end to this suffering. And the end comes in the fourth noble truth, which is the path. And we've been walking on the path, or you could say sitting on it, a lot for, since Friday night. The path is the medicine. If you take the medicine for the prescribed illness with the appropriate medication, uh, you get cured. So it's a, a kind of a, a model that I think should be familiar to all of us. It's a medical model. But a lot of what goes on uh, <clears throat> in human life, including in the Buddhist world, uh, we don't, uh, let's put it this way, supposing you were ill and you went to a doctor and the doctor gave you a really good examination and then prescribed that you take certain pills twice, two pills three times a day. And he wrote out a prescription, etc. And you took it home, and you mounted the prescription in gold, framed it, uh, created an altar, put the prescription on the altar, lit candles and incense, put a picture of the doctor on the altar, <laughs> and started bowing to it, chanting to it, lighting incense, praying to it, and you get disappointed because you're still sick. So you go back to the doctor, and the doctor starts, being a, a sincere doctor, starts to explain the whole thing to you. He starts talking about the immune system and uh, all kinds of chemical uh, understandings, and, and you get it, you understand it, and he tells you a few books to read, you go back, you read the books, you understood what he said, and then you start arguing with all your friends about your particular theory of the illness, uh, what it is, and they start giving you another one. It should be naturopathic, it should be herbal. No, it shouldn't. The pharmaceutical is good. Uh, you still won't get well. So at some point, hopefully we get it. We take the pill, the two of them, we put it in our mouth three times a day. And Hopefully that will help. That's what the path is. The path is uh, doing it. Uh, the, the Buddha says that all he can do is point the way. Buddhas point the way. But we have to walk the path ourselves. That's what we're doing. That's what we've been doing here. 
Um, Let me try to uh, okay. Let's go to the path itself. Sarah gave you a, a, a good sense of one important aspect of the path, which has to do with ethical training. On Friday evening, the precepts. That is, if we don't, if our house is not in order, if we're stealing, lying, misusing sexual energy. Uh, shooting up, getting drunk, etc. Um, do you think that can lead to happiness? How can it? So that minimal part of just ordinary civilized living has to be attended to. That's one major aspect of this eightfold path, which is the path. Another is wisdom. This, uh, wisdom is the understanding. At first, it's the intellectual understanding that the doctor gives you explaining to you about why you have what you have, what it is, and what might cure it. But that's meant to develop into deep understanding that's your own. The original wisdom is received. It's borrowed. It's secondhand. It's something that's been given to us by someone who's an expert. We have to make it our own. It has to become living wisdom. And so another aspect of the, of the path has to do with understanding, right understanding, right intention. And uh, in order to do that, we need a very steady mind. I'm not going through all eight factors, one, two, one through eight. I'm giving you the essence of it. The first step, uh, uh, in addition to the ethical principles which support a concentrated mind, that is, if we simplify our life, if we watch how we live, we don't hurt people, it become, the mind has less uh, vexation. It's less stirred up. So it puts us in a much better position to be able to calm and concentrate the mind. Some years ago, there was a, a person practicing along with me many years ago, uh, and he literally fell off his cushion. He was so tense in one sitting. And we later found out that he was wanted for extortion and kidnapping in Canada. Uh, but he merely wanted total and complete enlightenment uh, without taking care of the other part. He was concerned the police would break the door down any second. How could he get calm and concentrated? It was ridiculous. Okay, he didn't make that connection. Um, what we've been doing with the breathing is making, a, I think, a good start into the path by uh, concentrating the mind, calming the mind. Let me uh, put the, this all in context with a teaching story that comes from ancient India. There was an enlightened king um, who was very impressive because not only was he a king, but he also was a highly advanced yogi, meditator. And uh, this person, uh, a person, uh, saw this and wanted to learn how to do that. And so he approached the king and said, could I become your student? I'm very impressed with how you're able to not only be a king, but also to be uh, a very developed meditator. So the king said, okay. Uh, and he gave him his first assignment, which was to go through the palace 
with a pot of hot oil on his head and to go through each and every room of this very large palace without spilling one drop. And so this student, very determined, very sincere, went through the palace and went through every room and came back very proudly and said, I didn't spill a drop, as if his job was done. The king then said, did you notice any intrigue in the palace, any affairs going on, any plots to throw, overthrow me, any cabals, any, what's going on? I want to know what's happening in all those rooms in the palace. He said, well, I, I have no idea. I was so concentrated on not spilling the oil that I didn't notice what was going on at all. He said, okay, now go back and go through each room. Don't spill the oil, but when you come back, give me a full report of what's happening in this place. We've been doing the first one. We've been walking through the rooms of the palace, balancing the breath, essentially, on our head, trying to not miss a breath, missing a lot of them. Uh, and of course, in a story, it's nice and simple. I'm sure you've also learned some things in the process. How could you not have learned that things change? As you see, you like it here, you hate it here, uh, the breath is this way, then it's that way. So. Uh, you're catching a glimpse of what we call wisdom anyway. But our official job has been not to spill any oil. Now, if you just do this, it's not a direct way of getting to know yourself. See, the, the logic of the Buddhist teaching is simple. It's not uh, necessarily easy. It's not easy. If we suffer a lot, <clears throat> and that suffering is due to ignorance, that is because we ignore how we're living. We don't really understand ourselves. And because of that, and if everyone's like that, we're all doing it to one another. Well, what if we just turn that around? If instead of ignoring each other, we start to pay attention. We start to pay attention and to learn. The logic is if we do that, then we understand our way out of suffering. We understand our way into freedom. Those two are intimately related. Okay, so what <clears throat> we've been doing is fashioning our attention, uh, shaping the mind so that it's fit to look more carefully at a much more highly charged world, a more subtle world, the world of emotion, the world of likes and dislikes, the world of loneliness and fear, the world of the body, in short, our life. <clears throat> not only inside, but also what's happening to us. Uh, but by simply doing what we've been doing, we've already begun to accomplish a lot. And for many of you who are new, uh, probably over this weekend, it's advisable that you mainly do what we're doing. I'm going to uh, sketch out some of where this path leads, just to give you a, a bit of a hint. Uh, we can't possibly do it justice in, a, in a two days. I mean, we could if we talked all the time, or a lot, but we're not going to do that. Uh, already, <clears throat> by coming back to the breath over and over again, a lot is being accomplished. Perhaps you've had the beginnings of a taste of some calm, some stillness, some serenity. If so, maybe it only lasted a breath or two. Understand that that is the beginning of something that deepens as you practice. 
It becomes not only deeper, but much more stable. It becomes something that is accessible to you in your life. That's a tremendous asset. When we leave IMS, uh, in our life as it is, a stable mind is a tremendous help in life. For example, if you could put your attention on what you want to put your attention on and keep it there for as long as you wish to do that, can you see how helpful that would be? That could be another person speaking. It could be your job. It could be washing the dishes. It doesn't really matter. It could be listening to your child. Now, <clears throat> we've been learning how to do that, and that skill, uh, as you'll see in a moment, is meant to be now applied to our own experience, to looking deeply into our own experience. Other things that happen that are of value in this first journey of going through the palace, even though we're not learning a lot, is that we're keeping out of trouble. For example, um, often when we get caught up in the productions of the mind, and as I think probably you all know, uh, it doesn't necessarily have a happy ending. We get caught in a thought, and the thought becomes an emotion, and then the body becomes tense, and then we have a thought about that thought, and before we know it, we have a melodrama, we're exhausted and we're in a lot of pain. Okay, one of the things we're doing is we're short-circuiting that process. Every time you uh, lift your attention out of what you're enmeshed in and very gently come back to the breath, you're weakening that tendency to just wander all over the place and, in a sense, be enslaved to the productions of your own mind. You wake up, maybe you're a minute or so into it, and you gently come back to the breath. You're not nourishing it. You're not strengthening that. And what you are instead, what you are nourishing is this ability for the mind to be steadfast, for it to have some stability. Uh, eventually, what the training is designed to, to do is to enable the mind to be unwavering. The Buddha was sometimes referred to as somebody who had mastered come what may seeing. Come what may seeing. Uh, that's an unwavering mind. That means that no matter what turns up, uh, you're able to face it. There is an assumption here, which for me it no longer is an assumption, but if it is for you, you'll have to find out that finally it's good to face things. Finally, there is no escape from suffering. There may be an end to it, but it's not by escaping. The unnecessary suffering that's being implied here, the extra. Uh, another thing that we, we develop in staying with the breath is we develop a kind of another refuge. When you improve your ability uh, to uh, come to rest in the breathing, you can um, have it as a kind of oasis when you need it. Sometimes things are very difficult in life, and we find that we're uh, upset, we're being washed away by what's happening to us. The level of concentration can be developed so that you can temporarily get out of harm's way. You can come to rest in the breathing, and then when you come out of that concentrated state, you have a much better chance of dealing, 
in an intelligent and sane way, a wise way, with what you're facing. You haven't taken care of what you're facing, but you've pulled over to the side of the road, so to speak, uh, regained your composure, refreshed yourself, and then you come back into, you get back on the highway of life. That's another uh, tremendous help. Another thing that you've been developing, whether you know it or not, is the art of surrender or allowing. You've heard Sarah and I say many, many times, let the breath be exactly the way it is. Don't try to uh, tamper with it. Don't try to fix it. Um, this turns out to be a tremendous asset in the next stage of the meditation, uh, where if you want to know about something, uh, you have to move in close and you have to see it in its natural habitat. You have to allow it to be what it is. If you're in such a hurry to change it, if you're in a hurry to change it, uh, you won't be able to see what it really is because you're too concerned with the result, the outcome. So we, if we can learn how to allow the breathing to unfold, which to some degree you, we've been learning and I hope developing, uh, perhaps we can learn to also allow our emotional life to unfold. Perhaps we can allow the nature of the body to express itself and tell its story as well. Okay, so it, we've already done a nice piece of work. It's useful. But we don't know what's going on in the palace. So in answer to the king, we don't know. We don't know what to say. Okay. Um, in the second set of instructions, we're, um, let me switch into another mode of practice now. Uh, and I'll give more detailed instructions tomorrow in the first sitting after breakfast. Although I'm going to say enough tonight that some of you may wish to uh, experiment with it already. Certainly some of you have been practicing for a while. But even those of you who are new, just to get your left or your, one of your big toes wet, just to try it out, even if you can't do it, begin to see what we're talking about. In the first mode of practice, we use the breath exclusively. Right? We just kept, no matter what came up, whether it's interesting or trivial, it's a distraction from being with the breathing. Now, we, uh, in the second mode, you can still rest in the breathing, only we loosen our grasp on the breath. On the breath. We're not, we're not, it, there isn't an exclusive focus any longer. Now we're in touch with the breathing, we're resting in it, and sometimes that can be very, very deep and concentrated. But we also have more of a panoramic and open mind, more of a global sense, an openness, an availability. So we're sitting and breathing, but now we're interested in what's going on in every room in the palace. We're the palace. And all the plots and intrigues, it's what our mind is doing. And so now as we sit and breathe, uh, stabilized to some degree by conscious breathing, now we're interested in what comes up. And what comes up is what comes up. We don't know. No one can tell you or guarantee what's going to come up from moment to moment, from breath to breath. So we sit and breathe, and what might come up is nothing. Maybe it's just silence. So that's what you listen to. You listen to silence. Silence is 
a very, very important dimension of life, one that we don't include. We have a rather limited view of what silence is, mainly if the refrigerator uh, quiets down or if the children go to sleep and turn the TV off, then that's we call that quiet. There's a deep inner silence that's extraordinary that is part of where the practice goes. If you don't want that, you came to the wrong place. Um, so you sit and you breathe, and in the second set of instructions, second mode of practice, it's a new attitude that's asked of us. It's still this openness, and it's still this allowing, in that we don't have an agenda. Nothing is supposed to happen. All that's happening is you're sitting right in the midst of your experience. You're practicing just being yourself. It's odd that we have to learn how to be ourself. Uh, you think, well, what else could we be? But it isn't true. Uh, Atisha, one of the great Indian masters of this form of meditation, said that the highest meditation is the mind without pretense. No pretense. Uh, that's what's going to be asked of us now, is to sit in a total openness, being willing to, in a sense, uh, expose ourselves in a naked way to our own experience in this moment from breath to breath. That's a challenge, quite a challenge. It's gentle, but it's a new kind of learning because we have very strong likes and dislikes. We have very strong preferences, and we don't want to be mindful of a lot that comes up in the mind. And we'll see that. It's okay. We're not trying to annihilate that tendency, but rather it's we move and we find limitations that we set upon ourselves. And after a while, I think you may see that we're living in a self-imposed prison and that we've created the bars, we're the guards, we're the walls, and we're the prisoner. And what's holding us back is ignorance. We don't understand the ways of the mind. We're not seeing what it is that we're doing. And so the breath continues with on with us in this journey as a good friend. For example, see if we can find a concrete example that this perhaps will help you understand the difference between pain and suffering that the Buddha was getting at. If you recall, pain is not something that any of us can get away from. Suffering is optional. You're sitting here, as probably all of us have been, and you experience some uh, pretty intense pain in the body. Uh, the practice now is, includes whatever is happening. So let's say typically in a sitting, you work with the breath exclusively, the mind calms down. Now, maybe you're not at that point just yet, if you're very new. It, that may be so, and that's fine. But I have to give you a sense of, or I'm trying to give you a sense of where this all goes uh, and what we're moving into uh, next. So you're sitting in the hall, and you have uh, some sharp pain, pain in your knee. Your knee starts to hurt. What would practice be like? Uh, 
attention would be directed to that sensation itself, that which we call pain. Why? Why do that? Because that's what's happening. That's what our life is in the moment. We're mindful of things because they're there. We don't need any other justification. Our life is like this right now. And so we learn to, oh, all right. So mindfulness focuses in on those sensations. Now, some of you I know have tried to do it, and at first it's not an easy thing to do. The mindfulness has to be equanimous. This quality of awareness has to be one that is not reactive. Typically, if we have something that's painful, let's say the same knee, either we deny it, we cope with it, we put up with it, and there's a lot of struggle and conflict in that, or we completely drown in it. We so totally and thoroughly identify with the pain that it becomes self-pity. Poor me. This is happening to me. This is not just throb, throb, throb in the knee. It's my knee. Once it becomes my knee, that's the end of it. We're finished. That, now that's the optional suffering the Buddha's talking about. The pain in the knee is real. And there's, uh, it's there. As you begin to understand the ways of the mind and the ways of the body, you begin to see that the mind starts to make up stories about what's happening to it. It's doing it all day long. Just a great storyteller. And one story that it might make up is that this is happening to me. This is my knee and everything that comes from that. Once you have personalized it that way by identifying with the pain, then you have torment. Insight, one meaning of insight is insight into just such that, such as that. You begin to see, for example, uh, insight into the difference between mind and body. And in the process of doing that, uh, the mental part that we're adding to what's happening to us starts to weaken and even fall away. And we still have throb, throb, but we don't have throb, throb turned into a melodrama or a tragedy. Now, I'm picking something relatively simple, like a knee pain, but it's the same with other events as well, including the emotional uh, problems that the mind has. And the breath can help you do that. It's like a soothing friend as you uh, direct your mindfulness to the uh, discomfort in the knee, in, out is happening along with you. It kind of holds your hand and uh, supports you in that. It nourishes the mindfulness. And it gives you, a, it also cuts down on a lot of unnecessary thinking. If you're conscious of the breathing, there's much less uh, stuff that the mind throws out, which we then believe in. As you start to practice, as you start to practice, not only can you do this with the body, but you can do it with feelings, you can do it with all kinds of mind states. And that's how we liberate ourselves. We begin to see literally how we, to come back to where we started with the Four Noble Truths, how we crave and attach to things, and as a result, suffer. 
And as we begin to see the nature of the sensations in the knee, as we begin to see the nature of the mind itself, we learn something rather obvious and profound at the same time, that all of it is impermanent, it's changeable. As you begin to see that this world is a changing world constantly, and we are cha we're part of that world, we're changing, as we begin to see that, we begin to see that everything is uncertain. We literally don't know what's going to happen, but we do know that because this is not weird, it's the way life is, it's natural for things to change. However, we're not, one meaning of ignorance is not living in the world as it is, but living in the world as we want it to be. So we have many, many fixations in the mind, most of them unexamined. We don't even know that it's even a fixation. That is, uh, strong graspings onto things being this way or that way. Uh, and because it's a changing world, if we have a mind that is fixated, where can that go but to unhappiness? We're not, a, we're not living in the world as it is. The world very often is not the way we want it to be. And we insist on it being that way. And then in that struggle, uh, in that either pushing away or holding on, we want to hold on to certain things because we like them. They feel good, but they must leave. We want to push away certain things because they don't feel good, but they stay as long as they want to. And little by little, we begin to see this. The breath plays its part in helping you to stabilize your attention. At first, uh, it's rather difficult to see the impermanent nature, particularly of the mind, all the mind states that come and visit us, and bodily conditions, because we don't have an adequate uh, stability of mind. We're not concentrated enough. That's what we've been working on since last night, to put the mind in a position, in a condition, so that it's steady enough to be able to see what's in front of it. As it uh, becomes better able to do that, the next uh, challenge is to become at home with the body, to become at home with the fe feelings and mind states. We haven't had practice. It's really quite radical. It's revolutionary to take a look at what's there simply because it is there. And so now we have at least a more stable mind. And now we're becoming more familiar with the materials that make up our life. If you want to get to know a person, you have to spend time with them. You have to listen to them. You have to, to look at them. You have to do things together. It's the same here. Uh, I would say we are all, before we start, on some form of self-awareness, intimate strangers. We think we know ourselves well, but we know ourselves well often through stereotypes and concepts and, so, and images, some of which have been given to us by our parents, by the school system, by teachers, by professionals, by books, by ourselves. This is a different kind of looking. This looking has nothing of the past in it. it. It's not coming from yesterday. It's a fresh look at what's happening right now. It's a, a clear mirror, a clean mirror. And the practice is 
more and more refining our ability to pay attention so that we have that quality of attention. As that starts to mature, more and more we start to see more deeply into the nature of the body, the nature of the mind. We begin to see impermanence, that everything is constantly becoming something else. This doesn't mean that life is not valuable or wonderful. It can be quite the opposite. When you realize how perishable and fragile everything is, it can even be more precious. But we're beginning to see life as it is, not as we wish it to be, not as we think it is. And of course, most important, it's not seeing it, let's say, the way a historian would, seeing the changing nature of civilizations. Or a scientist would see the changing nature of, of atoms or some material substance. We're seeing the changing nature of us. It's intimate and firsthand. And that helps with the letting go of the cravings and attachments that produce the suffering. We begin to see what it means to be a person. Personal identity. I, I probably many, if not most of you, have heard of the Buddhist teaching of not-self, of emptiness. It causes a lot of confusion. It really isn't all that complicated, although I'm not saying it's easy to attain. But it grows quite naturally out of a deep understanding of impermanence. If you watch what you think of as being you, from moment to moment, you'll see that it's not a stable process. There are all kinds, from moment to moment, that changes. We have different images and so forth. Uh, I don't want to go too much further with this, except to say that the practice is enabling us to have the kind of mind that is able to really take a look at how we actually live, underline actually. How our actual minds and our bodies and our emotions are behaving in a given moment. And as we learn to see that, that first-hand kind of learning, a wisdom grows out of it that's living. Because it's something that you have taken from your own experience. It's not from a book or a teacher, as helpful as that might be. And what is being suggested in the Buddhist teaching is that it's only this kind of first-hand, direct, intimate seeing that enables us to get free. I'm going to leave you with an image. We only have a few minutes left. Uh, all the Buddhist schools talk about using rather different language, but I think meaning the same thing. Where this all leads to, it may be called nirvana, it may be called our original nature, our true nature, the nature of the mind. It may be called Buddha nature. It may be called the unborn, the deathless, the indestructible. But what it's saying is that there's a deep treasure, there's something quite wonderful that each human being has. We're born with it. No one's been cheated. The Buddha says that. One of his most important pronouncements is that He's not special. He was a human being who woke up. And essentially that's what this practice is. It's the art of waking up from a dream. 
which we may not think is a dream. I'll leave you with an image simply because it's helped me so much for a number of years. And Another way of putting uh, the treasure that each one of us has, but perhaps is not in touch with, it's uh, think of a clear blue sky on a beautiful day. Vast, you know, it's just beautiful. We love it. Uh, but also think of clouds. A lot of what Vipassana practice is, to begin with, is getting to know the clouds. We're beginning to see the many ways in which we obscure the sky from ourselves. The many ways in which we uh, obscure who we really are by notions of, of who we think we are, which we've inherited from the culture. All kinds of concepts, self-images, which we take to be real, but as you start to watch them, they turn out to be representations of ourselves, the way a photograph is. As you begin to see their nature as impermanent, they lose their power, they fall away, and you find the blue sky that's always been there. It's not that we cultivated or grew it or developed it, it's that we cleared away the clouds by seeing that the nature of a cloud is that it's ephemeral. The clouds are all of our mind states and tendencies and fears and apprehensions and likes and dislikes and so forth. So in Vipassana, we begin where we are. So whatever you brought to this retreat, perfect. You're an awful person, great. You have to start there, that's it. Who else are you going to be? You begin to see that's just the concept, though, just the label. And so all of us have all the materials we need, and now what we're learning is how to equip ourselves so that it is not fanciful or just uh, some romantic uh, spiritual story that brings tears to our eyes and uh, makes us feel good for a few hours or days, but then uh, evaporates because we're not uh, really... Uh, living it. We're not living the ideas. We're not learning how to, to see what's really there. Okay, just the last hint, if you wanted to practice with what I'm saying, and we'll go into this in more detail tomorrow, if you feel your mind has calmed down a bit, then relax your hold on the breath, sit and breathe, but now widen the scope of your attention so that you're with, with whatever turns up. Sometimes the body will be much more vivid, sometimes a particular feeling or an emotion. To begin with, you may find that it's very difficult to be aware of mind states because they catch you and you then are enveloped. Well, then stay more with the body, which is much more accessible. Use the breath to help you. Use the breath to help you in daily life. If you, if you have a job, you're working in the kitchen, and you have aversion or you're distracted, uh, the key thing is to do the job. It's not to get lost in the breath and the dishes mouth pile up and are dirty. But if the breath can be used skillfully, it can help bring you into the moment so that you can, uh, so that your actions 
are appropriate. They're aligned with what's happening. Washing dishes, taking a shower, eating, and so forth. Thank you for listening. To learn how you can support the teachers and Dharma Seed, please visit dharmaseed.org slash donate.